So, tonight is, uh, as you know, tonight is Hanukkah. Those are good words to a song. And we're going to, uh, we're going to, we're going to try to focus today on the night of Hanukkah. And here I'll tell you what, one of the biggest challenges that I have, and I'm sure we've all had this, this challenge with Hanukkah, and that is, is that Hanukkah is so long with so little text. Meaning, like, you get to Purim, there's a whole Megillah, literally, right? And then when you get to Hanukkah, it's like there's, there's nothing. There's like, you have eight days of it, and there's not even any, te- there's, not, there's, no, there's no Megillah, there's no, there's no text, there's very little even rabbinic text. If you look in the whole, in all of Tanakh, there's no, to- there's no text on, on Hanukkah whatsoever. You look in all of the rabbinic text, there's, very, uh, there's, there's essentially, I would say, the maximum of two and a half double pages dedicated to Hanukkah in total, over all of the 2,000 um, plus um, uh, pages in, in, ta- in the whole of the Talmud. So you're like, you know, what are we supposed to do for, for all these eight days? How are we supposed to know about it? We're, we're all very into understanding and getting and appreciating what we're doing, but where, where does it come from? So here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the kicker of the whole thing. And that is, is we want to, be, we want to really get a sense of appreciation of the fact that it may be that Hanukkah happened well after, the, well after it all started, well after Tanakh finished, but ultimately, actually, it really appears earlier. Meaning to say that the, the framework of Hanukkah started way before Hanukkah actually ever occurred. And that's, that, that's going to be our, uh, our, our test tonight. Um, uh, one second, just want, to, just want to check one thing. So, what we're going to do is we're going to try to reverse ourselves backwards in history and say, well, when did Hanukkah occur when it wasn't really yet Hanukkah? That's, uh, that's our goal for tonight. Can we find places that it did exist? It's something that sounded like it existed, but it wasn't yet it. It was kind of the archetype of it. Because as you know, in the, in the Jewish year, it isn't that just like you know, an event happened to happen in a certain time. There are certain times there's auras around certain time periods, and within those auras, certain events that are, reflect that. So, for instance, like, you know, the fact that we have Pesach in the spring, at least in the northern hemisphere, is, is indicative or is indicated in the fact that there's a renewal, there's a blossoming in general in the world. It's the Aviv. So that, that resonance season is the, the season of renewal, which allowed it to be that redemption would take place during that aura of season. So the question is, is what else occurs around now, which was the, was, we'll call it, you know, in the same spiral, in the same moment of that spiral, the same aura which allowed Hanukkah to happen around this time. That's our, that's our question. So what we're going to do is we're going to go all the way back to the very, 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 very beginning. In order to do that, we're going to take a text of the Gomorrah itself and then move our way backwards with that. So we're going to take a look at start. We actually start on text two. This is the Gomorrah itself, one of the very, very few places that the, the Torah itself talks about what it is that uh, Hanukkah is. And the Gomorrah tells us in source two, this is the Gomorrah Shabbos Chav Aleph and Mabez. And what I want to just focus on is the strangeness of this text. This is a very unusual text. Um, the, t- the text is the following. My Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? That's a pretty good question, right? Because we're all there. We all want to appreciate it. The Gemara explains. The Tan Rabbanon. Bechofe Bekislev. On the 25th of Kislev, that is That was today in the day. Yomei de Hanukkah. The Etam Naya Inon. They were eight days of Hanukkah. Deloi lemispad bohon. Udeloi lisanos bohon. There are days you cannot eulogize and you cannot fast on. Meaning there are happy days so you can't do negative sounding things or depressing things on them. Now if I were to ask you what is Hanukkah all about... That's a little bit of a strange description of it, after all, right? Meaning, t- tell me what it is, not what it isn't, right? Hanukkah is the day that we light candles. Hanukkah is the time that we have donuts. Hanukkah is the time we dance with our families. Hanukkah is the time we have loud music. Hanukkah is the time we go to the park. And there's all kinds of things we can talk about. The Gemara says it's the days we don't, 
We don't, we don't, we don't fast, we don't, we don't take, we make hespedim, we don't do eulogize. That's the kind of very negative description. It's sort of like drawing the silhouette of, the, of what Chalukah is rather than telling us what it is. So now the, the Gemara continues with the story. Why? And this is in the source to the end of the first line. When the, the Greeks entered the Alahechal, the temple, we know the story. They impurified all of the oils. And then when the Chashmonai re-entered, they looked all over, they, could, they, they che- checked to see even one, and they, they were only able to find one um, jug of oil. That had the, the seal of the high priest. There was only enough to light on one day. And it lasted for eight days. Fantastic. That's all the story of Hanukkah we know and love. Fantastic. And the Gemara then concludes, the Shona Acheres, which literally means another year, means to say the year following ostensibly, or a time period following. They made them days of thanksgiving and praise. Great. That's the origins of Hanukkah. So when you look at this Gemara over here, the Gemara is trying to give us the format for this. It happens to be there is one other place in all of the Talmud that uses that, last, that same last description, you know, that highlighted text, that another year they fix this as an eight-day festival. That text appears in only one other place in the Talmud, and it happens to be, I just had the, uh, the opportunity last year of working a little bit with Rav Foreman on this particular idea. Um, it's an idea which I heard many, many years ago in the name of Rav Moshe Shapiro. Um, that um, originally appears. Very, very fascinating idea, and, and, and it goes as follows. This is the first, the first Hanukkah of, of Tanakh. It starts at the very, very beginning, way before we ever imagined it. Here's the Gemara. The Gemara says, um, <clears throat> the, Gemara says the following in uh, Avodah Zorah. The Gemara in Avodah Zorah is talking about different cycles of pa- pa- uh, polytheistic religions. Why? Because we need to be aware of when those religions celebrate their festivals because... We're not allowed to do business in the times where people would really serve Avodah Zarah. We weren't allowed to do business with those people around their festivals because we're not allowed to invest in them. We're not allowed to give them pleasure before or on their festivals because they'll go and thank their gods. Right? It's not as much of an issue today. There are very few polytheists who are very into their festivals as they are as they were in those days. Okay? But um, um, in, in, uh, the Gemara is going through a number of different um, descriptions and it's talking about two festivals now. These two festivals are called Saturnalia and Kalenda. Kalenda, we know a little less about. Saturnalia, you can look up on Wikipedia. It's very fascinating, very fascinating and uh, um, festival. Lots of interesting history in the Roman Empire, particularly, and how that is, uh, had its origins in what we have as Christmas today. Just interestingly enough, um, but nonetheless, this is the Gemara is talking about. So remember, we're we're talking in a text, you know, at the at ma- at, at minimum fifteen hundred years ago. So this is this is what we're, the, these are the festivals. Here's the Gemara says, and it relates a fascinating story in this first source. Amarav Chanan Barava, Kalenda, that's the word Kalenda there, Ches Yamim Achar Tzakufa, Saturnura, Saturnalia, Ches Yamim Lifnei Tzakufa. There were these two festivals, they're both eight day long festivals, and they preceded and followed the solstice. Tzakufa means the solstice. When is, the, when is the, the solstice, the winter solstice? Today we have it as? As December 21st, right? So around December 21st, which is today, the solstice, before and afterwards, that would be a solstice um, festival. And, and by the way, many, many, many polytheistic religions have solstice festivals, right? These are all the, the, the festivals that surround the, lower, the, the shortest day of the year. And he quotes a, um, a, 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 um, a way of remembering this, skipping to the period. 
Rabbanan taught. That was the abbreviation. When Adam first saw the days were decreasing, he says, maybe the world is darkening because of me. Let's think about this. When, when do we appreciate, when was, when was Adam and Chava, when were they created? At which po- point in the year? We generally understand that they were created at what date? Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, right? So we, we understand the world started on the 25th of Kislev. The sixth day of creation was the creation of humanity, which means that the creation of humanity is in Elul, uh, the end of Elul, beginning of Tishrei, which is why our judgments on that same day, meaning to say we have to, we have to get up there and get in the dock and explain why we need to carry on existing every time it's our birthday, ultimately, while it's humanity's birthday. Right? That's, that's why it's at that cycle. So now, he, uh, what happens on the first day of creation? Adam Arishan is created and... First day they get out there, there's one thing they're not supposed to do, and they do it. They eat from that tree. It's all on the same day. The Gemara tells us in Sanhedrin that they sin on the first day of creation, which means Adam sins, Hashem says, you're going to die. Right? There's going to be death. He doesn't know what death is. He, right? he, he's only lived one day at this point in time. What, what starts happening? He's, he clearly is in the northern hemisphere in that, in that cycle of seasons. And what's happening? And every day he notices that Mincha is earlier, right? Because the days are getting shorter. So Adam uh, has this terrible sinking feeling that what is death? Death is as life slowly drains away, right? The plant, the, the foliage is starting to, uh, is starting to wilt. There's go, the the weather is getting colder. There's less sunlight. Life is diminishing. So I, that is an expression of what I did. This is what we did. We created this, the, the, this, this death and it's carrying on going. So he, what did he do? How did he respond to this? At the end of the fourth line, This is the death that I was punished with. As it was getting really bad, he, he started davening and fasting for eight days to try to change the cycle. Maybe he can break the away from what was happening. When he reached the, the nadir, the very bottom point, and it started getting short, and the day started getting just a little bit incrementally longer once again, then he realized, Omar min it's just the way the world works. Meaning, it's a cycle. It's a cycle. This is the first time it happened. He hadn't seen this before. It's going to come back. There's going to be summer. There's going to be spring. I'm going to live again. Right? That's what Adam Arishan experienced. Can you imagine, like, this, the, 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 the paradigm shift that's going through his mind? So he made eight-day festival. Fantastic. Here's our, our description. Another year later, Humanity took both these sets of eight days, the days of fear and fasting, and the days of rejoicing and thanksgiving, and turned both of those eight sets um, into, into festivals. Who, which is interesting, by the way, just psychologically, turning what was fear into rejoice, rejoicing. It's just interesting, meaning to say, you, you, you can imagine that those two festivals that humanity experienced them very differently, right? One was about relief, and one was about fear, which turned into relief. Um, and Adam was very firm about doing this for the sake of God. And they turned them into, um, into polytheistic um, festivals. Um, which is interesting. Humanity generally does, does this. as We sort of take something which was good at the beginning and, and convert it or transform it into something somewhat negative. Um, and the Gemara is therefore asserting that where do you see these solstice festivals emerging from? Or from uh, the calendar in Saturn, Saturnalia or Saturnuna, as the Gemara calls it, 
is originally from automation's experience. What's fascinating is, if you want to just do the math quickly, this is a very interesting thing. If the world was created on the 25th of Kislev, and the year is, the solar year is 365 days, a quarter of the year, of course, is always 91 days, right? So there's always going to be a 91 day for shifts. Solstices and equinoxes are divided by the, are essentially taking the year and slicing it into four pieces, right? So when we talk about the equinoxes, which are sort of in between seasons, and the solstices, the shortest and the longest days, they are essentially quarter markers of the year, right, in the, in the solar year. So the first year, if it was created with the assumption being that, now it's just hard to, to make this assumption, but let's assume that, that the world is created on an, on an equinox. Now it's hard to say because, again, the, the, lun, the, the, the celestial body is only created on day four, but it's just as, a, as a, uh, just if we were to say that that's a starting point of equinox, and the movement is downwards towards solstice, right? So it's going, the days are shortening, shortening, shortening till the solstice, then back up again. 91 days later is the 25th of Kislev, as an interesting point, which is fascinating, which means that when was the turning point of Adam's realization of this turn in the light shift is the 25th of Kislev, which of course wasn't yet, but was to be Hanukkah. So it's interesting that, and of course this is the festival of light and dark, right? Meaning to say, Hanukkah is essentially the eight days marking the end of that period of declining darkness. Right, so meaning to say, we haven't seen Hanukkah yet, but what the Gomorrah is essentially saying is that the format of Hanukkah, the pattern of Hanukkah, existed way before the Greeks ever existed, way before the Hashemonaim ever existed, way before any temples were fought over. It was simply the way the world experienced it. And that's why, if you look at all of these pagan religions, you'll see all of them have solstice festivals. Why? Because they all, they all are transmuting, or, or in a certain sense, taking away from Adam's original experience, which is what the Gomorrah is describing. Fascinating. Apparently, Hanukkah is not a takeoff of this, but Hanukkah ultimately is the original coding of that pattern before it went awry. That's, uh, that's what the Gemara is telling us. Fascinating. So, so we'll call this, we're going to put this, uh, if we're going to try to put this on the, on the board. This is, this is hidden Hanukkah number one, right? The first Hanukkah that we have. We're going to try to, we're going to, try to f focus on another four hidden Hanukkahs which arrive before we get to the Hanukkah that we know and love as, a, as, as it happens. So somehow in the very cycle of the year, the lunar, the, sorry, the solar cycle of the year, Hanukkah is inbuilt. It is fascinating for those who are counting that, of course, you know, December 25th is, of course, a very important festival for, um, for many of the, uh, for, for Christians. And that, if you count the days from December 25th to, uh, to, uh, to January 1st, it is 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 1. That's eight days as well. It is interesting to know that, and it isn't by coincidence, because if you read the history of Saturnalia, you'll see that part of what the Christian Empire did was to incorporate pagan festivals to be able to help bring in the crowds in order into the religion. So it's very fascinating, because remember, at the beginning, at the beginning when, uh, before the times of Constantine, and a little bit afterwards as well, Christianity was very much persecuted by the pagan culture surrounding them, until the Roman Empire actually became Christian. But part of it was, was there was a fight of culture, and this originally, the original Christmas was in fact a permutation of the Saturnalia and had a number of the accompanying practices which were pretty morbid as well, um, which accompanied it as well. So just fascinating take off again of what the Gemara was saying. Let's shift a little further into history. We're going to shift now two and a half thousand years essentially into, into history, way before Hanukkah but way after creation. So the second time we encounter a uh, hidden Hanukkah is the following. It is, it, there is a remarkable... I don't know if we're going to do all the texts inside just because of the sake of timing, 
But uh, uh, the text is here for, for your edification, if, you, if, uh, if it is of interest. The Yalkut Shimoni, which is one of the Midrashim, the Midrash Agada, on, uh, this is in, in Sefer Malachim, says a fascinating idea. And that is, actually Rashi quotes this on the Torah, this is a well-known um, idea. When the Mishkan was made, Moshe Rabbeinu came down from Har Sinai, he came down on the day of Yom Kippur. That was the day we atone, uh, achieved atonement. He then says, folks, you know you use that gold and stuff to make that eagle? Well, I've got a new idea about gold. So here's the deal. You take off the gold, we put it in, and we're going to make a Mishkan. Right? That's what's how it's going to work. And everybody was very enthusiastic. Fastest building campaign in history. It took three days, and they had more than they needed. And we've got to ask Moshe about how he did this exactly. We haven't yet got the, got, got the secrets. But nonetheless, um, this, was, this was a pretty remarkable moment in history. He, he collects everything on the 15th of Tishrei when they started making the Mishkan. When was the Mishkan complete? We know when it was inaugurated. It was inaugurated on the 1st of Nisan, but when was it complete? So interestingly enough, the Yalkut Shimoni, this Midrash says, the day it was complete was on the 25th of Kislev. So it took them roughly just under, essentially, um, just over two months to the, for them to build the Mishkan till the completion of the Mishkan. And everybody wanted to, to, to do it then, but Moshe Rabbeinu says, wait. He understood that Hashem wanted to build it in the month that Yitzhak Avinu was born, which is Nisan. Which is fascinating. Why does Yitzhak have to do with the Mishkan? Just a very fascinating question to explore. I'm not sure I have such, uh, such, such clarity on this yet. But apparently uh, Moshe, Hashem wanted to wait until Nisan to, to, make, to make the Mishkan. This is all in the Yalkut Shimoni. And everybody started whispering and saying, Moshe Rabbeinu, maybe there's a problem. Not everything came together. Maybe not all the monies, right? You know, all the things. The op-ed started coming into the local papers. And everybody had their theories as to why, why this was all waiting. And Hashem says, don't worry, Kislev. I know that you've been gypped now, but there's going to be a time in the future that I'm going to use you as an inauguration time. When's that going to be? In the future, 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 the time of the Chashmonaim, who are not going to dedicate, but they're going to rededicate my home. Right? Meaning the basement was already built. They weren't building it, but they were essentially purifying and rededicating what was, what was, what was um, had become nitma, what had become impure. So isn't it interesting? In a certain sense, the Hanukkah, the second hidden Hanukkah in history, is the Hanukkah which was waiting and waiting and waiting for the, the, the dormant month of Kislev, which should have been, could have been, and almost was the first building of the Mishkan and became the second purification of the second temple. That's the, the second one. Fascinating, right? This is just, again, it was kind of waiting. It was almost like the debt in time that Kislev had against all the rest of the months, and it found its, uh, found its fruition in Hanukkah. Okay, so, so Adam Arishon, moving on to the dormant month of Kislev, which had the, the Mishkan, but it gets more than that. So now if we fast forward a few months from the, 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 the origins of, of the Mishkan till when it was actually dedicated in Nisan, what happened was is... Um, is that it wasn't just like a it wasn't just like you know they cut the ribbon and everything was fine they, they you know they broke the bo bottle of champagne and everybody went home it was uh, it was interesting that there was a whole twelve day process of of this inauguration and every one of these days there was a gift brought by these people called the Nasim right these are the these the, the the princes of each tribe would bring a very special and elaborate gift you know they brought a, a cart and cows and incense and goats, the whole business, right? This was all a dedication, and this was a pretty expensive gift. Each of them brought their own one every single day. And for those, for, for those who are in shul, every single day of Hanukkah, we lay in one of their gifts. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. On the eighth day, we, re we read the eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, because there's twelve of them. Right, but we read the, the, that section on Hanukkah as the Kriya Satara. 
Um, and that's actually called, in the Torah, it's called Chanukah Sanasiyim, the dedication of the Nesim. It was in Nisan, but Chanukah means dedication. So they were dedicating to the Temple. Fantastic. Now, what does that have to do with us? Because that is the end of Parshas Nassau. Nassau, Nassau is the longest Parsha in the Torah because the, it has essentially 12 carbon copy paragraphs of each of the gifts of the Nisim, which take up a lot of space in the Parsha. Immediately following, the immediately following section of the Torah, after the Chanukah Sanasiyim is what begins the next parasha. Following Nasa is the parashas. <laughs> Baalos. <Baloscha>. Fantastic. Good. <laughs> um, so making sure that at this time of night, that, to, that the, 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 the gears are still turning. Uh, so uh, so Baaloscha is the immediately following um, parasha after Nasa. Now let's, let's go through the first pasuk of Baaloscha. When you light the candles, isn't it interesting? Immediately following the dedication of the Nesim, which is called Chanukas Hamizbech, is a section which talks about the lighting of the menorah. Now, the lighting of the menorah was not talking about the lighting of our menorahs. Let's be clear about that. It's talking about Aaron Akoin in the Mishkan lighting the seven-branched candelabra, right? This is just to be clear about this. But it is interesting. It's kind of like, it has got an interesting innuendo to it that, uh, that's relevant to us. So, the Rashi comments that it says, says the following. Well, there actually is a story behind all this. Because here, here, here's how it goes. If you count through all those 12 days, you'll notice something interesting. And that is, is that all the tribes are represented, all the tribes that is except for Levi. Levi didn't get a cut. It was Menashe and Ephraim got split into two, but Levi dropped out. There are really 13 tribes, essentially, right? Because once Ephraim and Menashe split into two of Yosef, they, a Levi kind of receded and didn't have the, his spot. So, it's, so the Rashi records, based on the Midrash, that Aaron felt very terribly upset. Here it is, everybody, everybody gets their you know, pump and circumstance, they bring in their carts, and there's Aaron sitting there watching the whole proceedings, and he doesn't have any representation, no plaque on the wall, no ribbon to cut, nothing. So what, what happens? Um, um, Aaron felt, felt bad, and Hashem says, don't worry, Aaron, I'm going to allow you to light the menorah and clean the menorah every morning. You light it at night, you're going to clean it in the morning, you get a special job. Don't worry. Yours is more important than even theirs. Don't worry, Aaron. And that's why, says Rashi, there's a proximity between their dedications and Aaron's lighting the menorah. Fantastic. The only thing which is not so fantastic is, is like, I don't know, if I was Aaron, I don't know if I'd be so, so consoled. Meaning it's like, you know, you know what it is? It's like, you know, they, they, you know, you have a whole building fund, you put up a new building, everybody's so excited, it's the big day, it's, you know, you have a whole video crew, and everybody's at the front, and everybody who's, who's anybody who's in that picture, or in the front page of every Jewish paper, and they cut the ribbon, and they, they pull over the curtain, and there's one person who just wasn't there, and they say, oh, we're so sorry, I forgot you, don't worry, you get to pay the janitor. It's like, Really? Like, uh, you're, gonna, that's, you're like, you're going to upkeep. Upkeep is really important. You should know. You don't worry about the plaque. Don't worry about anything else. Don't worry about the picture. You have upkeep. It's like, that's just like, that's just like I don't know. I feel like I missed the boat a little bit. You know what I'm saying? So like, Aaron, you get to light the menorah. That's it. Great. Fantastic. Every morning you're going to come in. Nobody's going to, you're going to keep the plate. You're going to keep the lights in this place on. I don't know. So the Ramban says, says, asks that question. The Ramban asks, and the Ramban's here, we're not going to go do it inside, but the Ramban asks that, that exact question. That just doesn't make sense. Why it should be that, uh, that he got this. And, and moreover, if you want to console Aaron and say, Aaron, you've got great stuff going on, you know what you should say? Aaron, you got the Korbanos. Meaning like, you know, this is the, this is the moment. The Korbanos, everybody comes together, everybody sings, there's a whole accompanying choir. That's, that's a little more, you know, the menorah is like inside. It's like, you know, it's like nobody really even sees that. Right, we, we all have pictures of it, but that, that, that wasn't a public ceremony. 
So the Ramban says no. He quotes a remarkable medrash. The medrash which he actually doesn't, it, we, we, we don't have inside, but he quotes it um, in the name of, let me see if I can find where it is. Megidas Sasarim, the hidden medrash of Rabbeinu Nissen that he, that, that, that he quotes um, from the Gaonic period. And he says the following. Yeah, let's actually take a look at this. On the very, very top of page three, just to see his, his exper- exper- expression itself. I found in the hidden Megillah of Rabbeinu Nisim. I saw in the Medrash, because all the other tribes brought their, brought their dedication and Levi did not, etc. So Hashem responded to Aaron's upset by saying, Hashem said to Aaron, Tell Aaron you're going to light the menorah. I'm going to give you a dedication in your, this, in, by the hands of your children. And they're going to even call that Chanukah, a dedication. Which is going to be in the future when the Chashmonai rededicate the temple. And that's why it is put next to the Chanukah Zemizbech. Quoting an end quotation. Which means, Aaron, I'm not telling you you're getting the upkeep of the Mishkan. That's not your consolation. I'm telling you, you're going to also get a dedication. You're also going to have a moment where you dedicate the temple. When's that? Not now. Not next generation. Not even the next generation. It's going to take a long time, but it's going to be in the future, future, future. It's going to be your children's children's children. Because which tribe do the Chashmonaim come from? They are Kohanim. That means to say they are scions of Aaron himself. Your children are going to be the dedicators of the Mishkan or the, Mizbe, the, the Mikdash itself. Wait. How? Represented in the menorah. But now let's, let's, go, let's, get a, let's, let's drive backwards a, a, a moment. Rashi had said, Your dedication is even better than these Nasim's dedication. Why? Why is the dedication of the Chashmonaim better than what the Nasim are doing as they dedicate the foremost first Mishkan? Why is it better than theirs? The longevity. Let's think about this. Some total of years the Mishkan existed was 40 years in the desert, plus minus 369 in Israel. Some total, just over 400 years was the amount of time that the Mishkan existed, and there was a lot of things that happened in between. That's how long their dedication lasted, and even the structure was different, because when they came into Israel, they took away the wooden poles and they made it stone. Okay, so um, that's how long we can give them. How long did the Hashemunayim's dedication last? Well, it's interesting that it pervades time and place, because even when the, Mish- the, 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 the Mikdash was destroyed, we carry on lighting. Meaning what we just did tonight, what we did in our homes, is a representation of their dedication of the, of the Mikdash. Which means to say their dedication was the ultimate dedication, which was not locked into a specific place and not locked into a specific time. He actually goes on to say a fascinating thing. The Ramban says this is worth chewing on. That the other thing that, they, that Aaron got as a consolation was Birkas Kohanim. Because even though Birkas Kohanim happens in the Mikdash, it still carries on today. And that's another thing which his example wasn't limited to time and place, also went beyond. Where does he see that in the Torah? Just out of interest. Where does the Ramban see in the Torah that that's also one of the gifts that Aaron got, which was beyond the Chanukah Sanasiyam? It's just a very fascinating point to notice. Is, is that the dedication of the Nasiyam in Parshas Nosai is bookended by two things. It starts with Berakas Kohanim and ends with the lighting of the menorah. So the Ramban is saying, just interesting, he isn't saying, it doesn't say this explicitly inside, but he's saying is that, Aaron, you've got two things which are going to be well beyond any time or space. 
that, that's just a very, very fascinating way of looking at things. But again, this is essentially our third, this is our, essentially our third aura of why it is that Hanukkah existed and predated the actual events of Hanukkah itself. One, Adam Arishan. Number two is when the Mishkan was finished but not erected. And number three is even when it was dedicated, it was dedicated, but Aaron was told, you need to wait because your dedication is coming. Just an interesting emotional point over here is if you are Aaron, Hashem says, don't worry, Aaron, you're going to have a chance to de- dedicate. Did Aaron ever see that? Nada. Did his children see it? Nisht. Did his grandchildren see it? Uh-uh. So if you think about this for a moment, Aaron, how, long did, how long did Aaron wait? Aaron died not getting a consolation. His children died not getting a consolation. His grandchildren died not seeing a consolation. It took millennia to get to that point in time where the Hashemunayim eventually upheld the lost dignity of Aaron. So sometimes it's important to just, just to realize that, that the, what, what, the, this bigger picture of the other Aaron is it takes time. The bigger picture does even itself out, but it takes a little bit of time sometimes. It's just something just worthwhile thinking about in the, in the, in the dimensions that the Ramban is talking about. Okay? Fascinating, fascinating idea. This, the, the, these are three of the, the most, these are perhaps the most well-known of the Hanukkahs, but there's a third one. Which, there's a fourth one. Just well, I mean, try to keep counts. And this, this one we'll try, to, we'll try to get to. This is a really fascinating historical one. Um, again, we're still in the times of Tanakh. What we're going to do now is we're going to fast forward. In the old days, remember when you had VHR, VHSs, you know, you could, there was a fast forward sound? They don't have that anymore. It's like, you lose, you lose so much. It's just like the experience of it. Anyway, so we fast forward a little bit, right, to, to the times where, um, where we get now to the, 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 the first temple has been and gone, and now they're in the goddess of Bavel. The goddess of Bavel takes about 70 years plus minus, and now this is the way we, we find ourselves. Okay, so we look around, we, uh, we get our time, time capsule, everybody's wearing Babylonian Gaber at this point in time, uh, Persian styles are coming in. We're, we're now living at the end of that period. It's a period which is called in Jewish history, courts called Shivas Tzion, the return to Zion. Why? Because the Jews are now living in Persian-controlled Babylonia area, and the Persians have got a general, their, their general foreign policy is, is a lot more uh, benign than the Babylonians. Babylonians are pretty rough people. They, they, they came, everybody they came across, they pretty much killed. Um, that, was their, 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 that was their foreign policy. It was pretty successful for the, however long it lasted. But it didn't last so long. They got killed um, very, very, very shortly after they rose to power. Babylonians were fast rising and fast dying. Um, the Persians were much, had much longer longevity, and their foreign policy was a lot more benign. They said, what we're going to do is we have... We have a lot of vassal states, and we're going to allow the indigenous people in each vassal, vassal state to return to their places and govern themselves and pay, pay Persian taxes. That was their general foreign policy. And that means those people from Judea, who call themselves Judeans, are allowed to go back and do their stuff. Now, that, that, that was happening across the, the globe in, Persia, in the Persian Empire. Remember, they had 127 states around the time of Ahasuerus, right? He was a Persian, uh, Persian empire, um, emperor. Um, but the, but the way that we look at it is, is not as if this was just a you know, geopolitical decision. We look at this as, the, as this was a divinely inspired decision, important for the t- events of the time. You know, how would Tanakh view our times and comment on it? So here we have it. We have a person called who's na- by the name of Cyrus the Great. In generally, in, 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 history, in history, I think the rule is pretty much is that if you kill a lot, a lot, a lot of people, you get called the Great. Right, like Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Great. Right, so depending on, you know, if you get a certain notch, you know, then, then you get called the Great. So Cyrus the Great was a very big conqueror, and um, he, 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 he appears in many books of Tanakh, um, um, most, most primarily at the end, um, as in the book of Ezra. This is how the book of Ezra starts in Source 7, page 3. Vishnas Achas the Koresh Merech Pras, the first year of Koresh, the, the king of Persia, of Cyrus the Great, from the, um, as Hashem had explained to Jeremiah the prophet, 
And Hashem inspired Cyrus to send a letter saying the following. Okay, so that's a picture of Cyrus on the right there. By the way, that's not Arabic. That is Persian next to his name, um, with his name in it. So this is what his letter said. God gave me, vested in me, the power of all the dominions of the earth. Right? So, I mean, pretty much the whole known world was under the Persian Empire at this point. He's a very powerful fellow. And he decided that I should be the one to allow there to be a, ba- a, a house in, in Yehuda, in Judea. And everybody who so wants can, can, under my banner, go back to the land of Judea and reestablish a house of worship for themselves. That's what he said. He essentially is giving them the warrant to go back to, to, to Jerusalem. There are lots of protests that weekend because people, the, the, the natural inhabitants of the Sumerians at the time were very upset about this and they staged global protests. But nonetheless, this is what he said. Right, and he was the king of Persia, so he had the right to, to, to say where his embassy would be. So he, um, so he, he, he made his, his, his decision. It's interesting to see, by the way, how Ezra describes this. Ezra, in the first passage, says, Heir Hashem is Ruach Koresh. Hashem inspired Koresh, meaning to say, he isn't commenting on Koresh's character, he's commenting on Koresh's actions. Right, and Koresh's actions were divinely inspired. Um, and then he... And then he, and then, uh, and then he basically, and then he goes on in this edict to allow them to bring back all the priests and the vessels of the Vesemidash, which had been confiscated by Bavel, and they could bring them back. It's remarkable, right? This is the most powerful man of the time, allowing them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so it was. They went up a whole posse of, um, of Jews and the scribes, went up, or Israelites, Judeans at this point, went up to, to, to the land of Israel under the leadership of two people. These are the two people. We actually sang about one of them tonight. Um, one's name was Yeshua Kohen Gadol. He was a spiritual leader. Some, he sometimes appears as Yeshua, right? Not to be confused with other people that some people might tell you he is. Um, Yeshua Kohen Gadol. And um, his, his co-partner, his governor, was a person by the name of Zerubbabel. Always got, when I was a kid, I always used to get confused by who is Zerubbabel and what was Zor. Zerubbabel was the scion of Yehuda. So he, was the, he is from Davidic dynasty. He was sent as the Persian governor, Jewish Persian governor, to head the, be the political head of the first return to, Z- to Zion under the Shabbat Zion, under Koresh. That's who Zerubbabel was. Okay, so Yeshua Kohen Gadol and Zerubbabel are going up together. They take a whole bunch of Jews and they settle down. What ends up happening under this edict? Fascinatingly enough, it doesn't get so far. Take a look in source. Um, we're going we're gonna to skip the top of page four. That's where Yeshua and Zerubbabel go up. Um, and then... In source 9, we're told, and this is already in Perak Gimel, that however, by the way, history never, never is, is linear. It's always cyclical. This is why it keeps repeating itself. So listen to what happens here. It's, it's unbelievable. He says, So all the neighbors who have been here for a sum total of, you know, the amount of time that it took for God above to be, to be exiled. So we're talking about a few decades, you know. Are now, and now, now here that the Jews have returned. So they appear, they approach the political leader and they say, Haha, it's our place too. Right? This is our temple also, right? So let's, let's build with you. We'll do it together. Right? One state solution. Right? We will serve him as we have been serving him from the time Assyria put us here. So they're actually predating themselves. They're saying that we came from the times that Assyria messed around the Middle East, um, which was a, a couple hundred years before. Okay, fine. So they have more indigenous roots. That's as far as they go. They probably come from 
further further east because the serious uh, the serious policy was to mix the nationalities of nations. That's where that's where they originally came from. Okay, good. Sorry, if you read the letter carefully from Koresh, um, there are no asterisks, no fine print that says anybody else is involved. It's just us, not you. Right? It's our letter. We're going to bring the the bias, but thank you and good luck. So they started creating... Uh, a, pr- a pressure on them. They made it difficult for them to build. Um, and then they started hiring PR specialists who would, um, who would be involved in trying to make it difficult politically for them to continue. They, they invested in, in international policies, you know, social justice for Judea. They had all these organizations on university campuses that were now, they, they, were, they were spewing forth all, these, you know, all, all, all this, um, this information and it made it very difficult. And in fact, as we go on and later on in, in, in Ezra, they were successful. Koresh edict, an obstructive edict, which, which stopped the building of the base of Mikdash. Why? Because, or at least the walls of Yerushalayim, because of what they did. No, sorry, the base of Mikdash was built when they started to build the walls. Then there was an obstruction, obstructive edict that disallowed them to. And later on, we're going to see in the times of Nehemiah, what they ended up having to do was spending half their money on, on, um, on Shmira, on having guards, and half the money on building. Something which, unfortunately, we know today. Israel's GDP, you know, a, 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 a huge percentage of that goes towards defense because just because we just just trying to survive things don't change right so this is this is the, the original times it was this moment of like wow we could have got there we should have got there we almost got there but we didn't quite get there right we, we didn't really get to the same magnitude of a, of a vision of what it could have been so around this time around the end of the reign of um of um yoshua kohen Gadol and surubavel they were they were in charge basically from the times of koresh in, in his first year and the way rashi dates it is Three more years of Koresh under political pressure from the inhabitants um, of, of, the, of the area. And another 14 years under Achashverosh, who came afterwards in this, in this particular timeline of thought. And then another two years of Daryovesh, or Darius II. Um, and for that amount of time, basically things were grinding to a halt. People couldn't really do anything. And it was at this point in time, the second year of Darius, so we're talking now 3 plus 14, 17 plus 2, is 19 years later. At this point in time, arrived the last of the Nevi'im, the last people who had prophetic insight from God, and their names were Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Some people say that Malachi was in fact Ezra, but we're talking about the last tier of people who ever spoke to God and told us, spoke to us. And what was their main thrust? What was the thrust of Chagai's um, words? Chagai is a very short book; it's only two chapters long. Um, Chagai is pretty clear about what he says. Um, let's take a look at um, at this over here um, in Source Eleven. This is the words of, of, uh, of, uh, of Chagai. He says, Emor no el Zerubavel, in source 11, Perik Beis. He says, Emor no el Zerubavel ben Shaltiel Pachas Yura. Tell Zerubavel, the governor of Judea, Vel Yoshua ben Yosadok HaKohen Godol Vesho Yisom Lemor. Tell them the following. Mi vochim anishar asher roi labais azeh b'chvod arishon amuatim roi mosoi. Do you remember the first base of Migdash? What do you see now? Atoh haloi komau ka'ain bein echem. Does it mean nothing to you? You saw it and you, you, don't, you see what we're missing? Be strong, strengthen your people. I'm with you, says God. Make the house. Stop getting scared. Don't, don't, don't get scared. Don't fall under the political and agitator's pressure. 
In a short while, says God, I'm going to bring this terrible storm, which is going to shake everything. It's going to shake the dry land, it's going to shake the, the oceans. And the, and the houses of God is going to be filled with my presence. So he's, he, what he's saying is, is, get up off your chairs. Don't worry. Don't, don't submit to terrorism. I have the silver. I have the gold. I'm going to take you through this. This is what Chagai um, um, says. Similarly, his contemporary, who's prophesizing on almost the same date, one month earlier, um, is, um, is Zechariah. Zechariah also himself says, if we just flip over, this is, this is part of our Torah we're going to be reading this Shabbos on Hanukkah. Zechariah says, uh, says to the same people, um, in source 14, Perik Beis, Kikom Marash and Sokos, Achar Kovod Shlochani Alagoim, Bashalim Eschem, Kianagebochem, and Nogebavas Bavavasenoi. Don't worry about those people who are hurting you because anybody who touches you, it's like touching my eyes, says Hashem almost. Meaning, so that's how much it hurts me when people hurt you. I'm going to destroy them, says God. You'll know that Hashem sent me. And he goes on to say, get up, do, make, and, and change, change the world. Um, Zechariah and Chagai were the last effort ultimately of God sending his message to build the base of Mikdash, to build Yerushalayim to what it should and could be. And the question really is, is did they succeed? Did um, Chagai and Zechariah really succeed in their, their vision of what Yerushalayim should have been? The answer is, what do you think? Did they succeed? Did they, did they really succeed in, 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 uh, in transforming what the base of Midrash could have been? The answer is, unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, no. Because we see later on, when Ezra and Nehemiah themselves come up, Ezra and Nehemiah are once again a pair of leaders. Nehemiah is the political leader. He's the Persian governor who's Jewish. And Ezra is the spiritual leader. They arrive a few years later. When they arrive in Yerushalayim, assimilation is rife. Anti-marriage is, is, is across the board. People haven't heard much about the Torah. The walls of Jerusalem are in disrepair. It doesn't seem to have, ha, have had much of an effect, unfortunately. What their, uh, all their, their fire and brimstone didn't seem to really get people into, uh, into action. How could that be? Meaning, didn't God say he's going to do something? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to destroy those nations. So the Malbim says, the Malbim is a general principle, um, which one of my teachers, Chaim Angel, said, calls, actually calls the Malbim principle, which is, is, that, is that there is a possibility of Geula coming, and Hashem talks about it, but it doesn't mean it has to come. It means it could come. Meaning when God says, I'm going to destroy these nations, it means if you decide to hold my hand and we do this together. But if you decide not to hold my hand and you decide to do your own thing, then it's going to be a lost aura. It's going to be a lost moment of potential. It's a window. An example the Malbim gives of this is like when Hashem, when you read all the prophecies of, let's say, Yeshayahu, the prophecies of Echezkel, and it sounds like the second Beis Hamedash is going to be this messianic age, and it wasn't. It just wasn't, as we see uh, from around here. The Malbim says, yeah, it, it could have been. It should have been. It would have been, but it wasn't. Right? That's the Malbim principle is, is that a lot of these prophecies, they're going to now they're restored for the future. But the point is, is they could have been at a certain, a very specific window in time, and it didn't happen. This is what, this is what we missed over here. The question really is, is, were they fully void? Meaning to say, were the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah fully void? Did they completely lose any traction altogether? And the answer to this is the fourth hidden Hanukkah of history. And that, uh, um, this is from the words of Menachem Liebtag. There's a very fascinating insight into this particular era in history. If you look at both the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, 
you'll notice something interesting. They both reference Chanukah. They both reference Chanukah very subtly. In the prophecy of Zechariah that we just read, a, very, a, sh- a, sh- a sh- short two prokim later is the Haftorah read on Chanukah, which is when he sees this golden menorah. Right? Remember the vision of the Zechariah, which we read this Shabbos as Haftorah, as, as he sees this golden menorah, and there's, and there's two olive trees, and the olive trees are filling into a bowl, and the bowl's lighting in the menorah, and it's a lit. And he's talking to Yeshua, Kongol, and Zerubbabel, the two olive trees I, ran, I once heard personally from um, um, Rabbi, uh, I'm trying to remember what, um, I'm, I'm losing the name for a, for a second, who was the first Mitnachel, the first of the Yeshuvim, was, I, I can't, I'm losing, losing the name over here, he came to Karen Biavne, and um, he, he, he described that this is a, the, the two trees were the physical leader, the, the political leader, and the spiritual leader who came together to, to light the menorah of the new state of Israel that it should have been. This is the vision of what it, what it was supposed to be. Even though Zechariah's vision of what could have been at the times of Yeshua and Zerubbabel never was, but the vision came in the form of a menorah. So when did it really happen? It happened two centuries later when the Hashemunayim finally took over. Isn't that interesting? Meaning what he wanted and wished to be wasn't, but it was later on. Because when the Hashemunayim took over and were able to push out the Greeks, that was the first time in the entire rule of the second Beis Amikdash that there was Jewish sovereignty over the Beis Amikdash. Remember, the Beis Amikdash was built under Persian sovereignty. It was taken over by the Greeks, which means it was paying Greek taxes. It was only to the Hashemunayim that we ever, ever pay Jewish taxes. Why? Because this is the moment that Zechariah was talking about, but it goes even further. If we look back at, Zach- at, uh, at, um, at Haggai himself, remember that where he's, where he's admonishing Yeshua, Kohen Gadol, and Zerubbabel? Listen to what he says at the, at the, at, at the end of this. Um, back, back in Source 11, remember he says, uh, in, in a little bit, I'm going to bring the storm which is going to shake up the earth and it's going to shake up the sea. Take a look at the very, very end of that section in Source 11, the very last pasuk. Be'estrim va'arbo'ala tishii. When was the next prophecy? On the 24th of the 9th month. Which month is that? Which month is the 9th month? Starting from Nisan, it goes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 7 is Tishrei. 8 is Cheshvan. 9th is Kislev. When was this prophecy? The following prophecy of, of Chagai was on the 24th of Kislev, which is the day immediately preceding. Chanukah. So his prophecy about all this grandiose and the potential which could have been was immediately preceding Chanukah. What does he mean when he says, I'm going to bring the storm? Says Rashi, the very last Rashi, the very last source that we actually have in the soul, in the soul section. Source 19. Rashi says the following. In a very short while, Rashi says, At the very end of the Persian Empire, when that rule over you, there's going to be another nation who rules over you. The Greeks are going to take over, and they're going to rule you for a short amount of time. But I'm going to I'm going to cause the storm. Through the miracles of the Chashmonaim household, as a Shomayim, the heavens, he says, you'll know that really Mashkina has returned to this house. And they will bring back the gold and silver to this house as is written in the book of Yosef ben Gurion. Who is, the, who is Yosef ben Gurion that Rashi is referring to? Josephus. Rashi read Josephus. Um, so um, he says there's going to come a time where this bias, which you think is so lowly, is so backwards, is so small, is going to get its grandeur back. 
When is that? It could have been now, it isn't now. When will it be? It'll be in the times of the Chashmonaim. Isn't this fascinating? Even before the Chashmonaim dynasty was ever dreamed up of, already Chagai and Zachari, the last prophets, are telling us, don't worry, it's coming. And you know that it may look, in fact, when, when, we, when they actually finally finished building this Beis Amigdash in the, in the book of Ezra, everybody, the elders, who remembered the first Beis Amigdash, and they saw the second Beis Amigdash, and they saw how small and humble and decrepit it looked compared to the first one, they all wept. All the newcomers were excited, they started laughing, and the, and the, the Pasuk says that you couldn't tell the difference between the laughs of, of joy and the, and, the, and the cries of pain as they looked at this new house. And you can imagine the disappointment that people felt when they saw the second Beis Amigdash. And Chagai and Zachariah, as the last prophet says, don't worry, there's going to come a time where I'm going to bring back the grandness to this house. And that is the fourth hidden Chanukah. So did Chanukah happen in Tanakh? The answer is no. But did Chanukah actually have its roots in Tanakh? Absolutely yes. And these are four examples of, in a certain sense, the, the seeds of what would ultimately turn into the prophetic state of Hanukkah. So that's, that's our preparation for tonight. I hope, I hope it is meaningful. And thank you so much, ladies. Have a Hanukkah summer.